Good afternoon. It is currently a dark and dreary day in Washington, D.C. We have a little bit of rain on this Wednesday, March 31st, 2021. We are joined. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, uh, Mr. Ralph Winnie. Uh, he is the director of the Eurasia Center's China program, as well as the vice president of the Eurasian Business Coalition. Uh, he has been ap appointed by the Guangxi Investment Promotion Agency as the business development representative of North America, where he works with clients in both the US and China on business promotion and tax strategy. And he has uh, held several high level conferences in Washington, DC uh, to those ends. He is also a senior partner at IPA, IPO Peng Jinpu Long Law Firm and is a shareholder of Henson, Peng and Winnie a premier international consulting firm with offices in Washington, D.C., as well as Shanghai. Uh, he has uh, uh, been on multiple international news services, including French TV, CGTN, and Russian News. Mr. Winnie, thank you for joining us. Glad to be with you, Casey. Thank you for the kind introduction. Absolutely. Uh, as always, I'm joined by my constant co-host, Nick Klein. Thank you for being here again. Oh, thank you for having me again. <clears throat> uh, today, we will be discussing uh, a sticky situation in international relations, cross-strait relations between the People's Republic of China and the Republic of China. Uh, at the moment, there is currently a status quo of both sides uh, holding their respective territories, but significant differences um, as to the One China policy uh, both uh, parties claim uh, to be the proper China and American policy, uh, largely in favor of Taiwan. Uh, specifically, in the last couple of months, the Ministry of National Defense in Taiwan has reported uh, numerous incursions into their air, def air defense identification zone of Chinese aircraft, including recently a sortie of four H-6 nuclear-capable bombers, 10 J-16 Chinese fighters, and six other military aircraft. So we are here today to discuss the context of cross-strait relations, and the history of what has led to animosity between both sides, and what prospects, peaceful prospects, hopefully there are for the future. So Mr. Winnie, the, the, the current situation is a remnant of nationalists and the communist uh, civil war in China uh, that was resolved after World War II. So how did uh, the KMT end up on uh, Taiwan? Well, they, they were defeated and they retreated into Taiwan and used that as the base of their operations, thinking that one day they would be able to go back to mainland China once the communists were defeated. Obviously that has not happened. And you have a government that does not want to engage with the PRC. They believe that they are the true legitimate government of China. And there is a real divide between the, the government of Taiwan and the people who would like to trade and engage in China. And the Chinese government has given Taiwanese a lot of breaks 
um, to be able to, uh, to establish business ties in mainland China. And the communist government believes that the way to bridge the divide between China and Taiwan is to engage in economic commerce, especially among the younger generation, um, hoping that the old, old guard nationalist party is just going to die off and that you'll have a new generation come to power in Taiwan that will want to engage in a form of reunification, economic, most likely, um, similar to what China offered Taiwan uh, back in 97 after the uh, handover. Exactly. Um, so Taiwan has, at different times since history, been uh, an authoritarian one-party state under the uh, Kuomintang National Party, Nationalist Party, and uh, since 1992 has been a democracy with contestation largely between the DPP, Democratic People's Party, and KMT. Currently, the leader is Tsai Ing-wen. Can you speak to her ambitions potentially for independence? Well, she has to be very careful. I think she wants to stay in power. She's going to try and bridge the divide between the younger generation that wants to trade and engage with China, that um, has, has engaged personally and professionally with people in mainland China. And I know this because of my involvement in Guangxi. Um, there are over a million Taiwanese companies doing some form of business in mainland China given very attractive tax advantages and other incentives to set up operations. Um, so the Chinese mainland China market is very attractive for young Taiwanese entrepreneurs, including people in the Taiwanese government. At the same time, the, the ruling Nationalist Party still maintains a strong a stranglehold that is not going to die off anytime soon. I think the Communist Party strategy is for the old guard just to die off and seek a form of reunification with the younger generation. That being said, the mainland, mainland China is not going to consider Taiwan a separate country. They are gonna consider it one uh, part of China and are gonna continue to assert and promote what they consider as their sphere of influence. And it will be up to the United States to stand their ground if they truly believe in the one China policy and not give in. Now that we have a new administration, the Chinese Communist Party is testing the United States to see how they are going to react. They know that, that Joe Biden has had some health issues certainly his falling on the tarmac um, was not very helpful in terms of making Biden look to be a very strong leader. So that's going to be seized upon by nationalists in um, China. So the important thing for the Biden administration is to be able to strongly assert their support for Taiwan at the same time, promoting the one China policy and engaging economically with mainland China, establishing personal and professional ties that will lead to stronger relations 
between China and the United States, which are very afraid right now. There seems to be a lack of respect, as we saw in the opening dialogue in Alaska. Um, this is not going to be corrected anytime soon. It's going to take, uh, take time. And I think it's important for the United States to stand their ground and to have a list of deliverables that they want accomplished and not deviate. But at the same time, be willing to engage and negotiate to pr promote small and medium-sized companies, help them get into China to engage, and also help Chinese companies be able to come and work it and set up operations in the US. One of the problems that we have is Chinese companies feel that they're not welcome in the United States. And that creates enormous challenges because we want Chinese foreign direct investment to come in here. It's been proven that F Chinese FDI really grows and stimulates different economies. Um, as a member of the National Council for US-China Relations, I was privy to a, a very insightful presentation by the mayor of Huntington, Huntsville, Alabama, where he talked about the wonderful effects of Chinese foreign direct investment in his community. Not only did they provide jobs and economic development to help grow the, the town, but they also actively engaged on a personal level with the, with the townspeople in Huntsville. And that's what needs to happen, both in China and um, in the United States. So when we send our companies over to the China, we have to be able to work and engage with the Chinese people to establish personal and professional relationships that will lead to longstanding mutual respect and understanding between the two sides, which, is, which can be lacking because it's two different cultures that we're dealing with. And how you're able to navigate and understand the Chinese culture is key. That's why we have an active office in Shanghai to help clients navigate um, the, the business side of, doing, of, of dealing with China. It's one thing to set up a company, but you have to know the laws, the rules, the regulations. You have to find a potential joint venture partner that you're gonna feel comfortable with. And that's one of the things that, our, that IPO Pang does effectively is to be able to navigate the labyrinthian sometimes of rules and regulations and establish the personal tie that will be that will lead to a successful business um, partnership. So one of the things you mentioned uh, was you know business ties between China and Taiwan, and I'm wondering if we could go a little more a little more into that uh, with the EFCA uh, yeah. and what that does exactly, or, or what it's uh, probable statuses right now? Well, the more that we engage with Taiwan, we show the Chinese that we're not giving up on one of our allies, that we believe in their self-determination and that it should be up to the people of Taiwan to decide how they want to be governed. If they want a reunification with mainland China or if they want to continue to be their own separate country under the guise of the one China policy that we've been adopting and supporting. And for listeners who are unaware of what the one China policy is, uh, it is a consensus that was developed in 1992 where uh, both sides of the strait uh, agreed to 
uh, acknowledge that there was only one China, uh, that there was not uh, two separate independent Chinas, uh, and that both sides would agree to disagree on who the rightful ruler of China was and resolve that at a further time. The U.S. has also supported this understanding and has since uh, 1979. Uh, uh, but uh, his come to China's aid, for example, in 1996 with the third Taiwan Strait crisis, where there was a very significant U.S. naval presence, um, both within and outside the strait, uh, in support of uh, the Taiwan people. Yeah, so this issue is not going away anytime soon. And we we're going to have to see how the Biden administration navigates this issue, because it can be very complex. And the important thing is to engage from a position of strength and respect. And that's something the Biden administration must work on cultivating with the Chinese in terms of their relationships diplomatically, personally, and professionally uh, in order to accomplish their, their objectives. And I think the Biden administration can do it, but it's going to take, take time. And they've got to focus on the nuts and bolts, and that is the economic relationship. From the economic, the political and the human rights will be able to be addressed in a more effective way with partners that have that respect and trust for each other. You noted the differences in governance systems uh, across both sides. Uh, in 2019, uh, Tsai Ing-wen gave a, a speech uh, discussing this very issue uh, where she uh, rejected the concept of the 1992 consensus and said that the, the government of Taiwan back then was not representing the proper will of the Taiwan people. Um, right noting that uh, in the Taiwan National uh, <clears throat> Social Survey, 75% uh, of respondents uh, said that Taiwan is an independent country called the Republic of China. Although right. interestingly, in the exact same survey, uh, only 1% of respondents favored reunification, 6% right. favored immediate uh, independence, but a vast majority uh, supported uh, maintaining the status quo indefinitely or some form of the status quo. And I see that I see that um, taking. I, I don't see that changing at this point. I just think, as time goes by and the older generation passes on, and you have a new generation coming into power, depending on how nationalistic they may be, will lead that drive towards effective Taiwanese independence. At the same time bread and butter issues are the most important issue in most people's lives. And if you have over a million Taiwanese companies doing some form of business in China, and you have such an interrelationship, it's going to be hard to ignore some sort of reunification, even if it's on just the economic level, with an understanding that Taiwan retains their own hegemony and sphere of influence. But that's going to take a while. It's not going to happen overnight. Um, and I certainly don't think that the U.S. is going to stand idly by if they think that China is totally dominating Taiwan, as 
has been alleged um, regarding the Chinese relationship and with Hong Kong. Um, the Hong Kong has has a very effective banking and economic system that is well respected internationally, and the Chinese have run the risk of damaging that um, through tactics that people feel are heavy-handed. At the same time, if Shanghai becomes the financial epicenter in the near future, Hong Kong could be be rendered meaningless. So we'll just have have to see. I do think that the Taiwanese people um, want are are inclined to engage um, with the with their Chinese counterparts with the with an idea that they're engaging from a position of strength and respect, and we'll see how that continues to move forward. Um, you know, in terms of the relationships at the diplomatic level. So I guess I have to ask then, uh, and maybe you've already kind of touched on this. Um, you know, you've we've talked, Casey was talking a lot about uh, the air incursions uh, that have yes. been going on uh, right. the past several months. Um, how does, I mean, we've talked a lot about how Taiwan, the Taiwanese people, uh, see their position in this. How does Beijing and how do the Chinese people see Taiwan? Well, the Taiwanese, I mean, the Chinese people believe that, that Taiwan is part of China, right. just like they believe Tibet is part of China and Hong Kong is part of China. And they believe that they're, you know, that the, the Taiwanese are Chinese, just like them, you know, that they're just, they're brothers and sisters. So they don't look at them necessarily as, as being separate and apart. They believe that they're, they're, part, they're part of this one, net, one China. Um, and that's why the, the key to the relationship building is through the economic ties that are very extensive between the Taiwanese people and the people in mainland China. So how that continues to grow and develop is gonna be very, very important moving forward. Will the US government continue to encourage and support that? Um, what kind of programs or policies are gonna be implemented that, that you could look at and say, well, is this going to lead to a form of economic reunification? So you think the, the you know, the whole um, crossing into, you know, Taiwanese airspace is, is purely to test specifically Washington? Yes, it's always has been. Every time there's a new administration, the Chinese are looking to test um, how they're going to react to um, dealing with the Taiwan. Are they going to take an aggressive response or posture? Are they going to stand tough? Or are they going to be obsequious and acquiesce? And that's, where, that's my point. You have to negotiate, engage, and show that you're, you're acting from a position of strength and power. And from the Chinese perspective, what do you think about concerns that uh, these overflights could trigger a escalation that neither side wants? 
Oh, I think that's always the case. I mean, when we saw um, when the South China Sea, you know, the U.S. military was aggressively engaging with the Chinese. Um, Chinese did one thing, the U.S. responded right back. You know, it's like we're going to we're going to come right back at you, you know, but come very close, but not go all out and out to the point of being involved in an armed conflict. It's just sort of posturing. Both sides are kind of posturing, showing their strength. Neither side wants to back down. Um, and the Chinese will test, you know, um, how the U.S. responds. Are they going to continue to strongly support Taiwan? Um, or is there any indication that they might want to back off? And which could lead to some future discussions, you know, in a, in a, in, in a summit. Because the Chinese um, dip diplomacy is based on an analysis of their opponents, how they react in the military sphere. Because many Chinese, especially in the diplomatic corps, have extensive ties with the military through their, their network, um, personally and professionally. And how their military is perceived by the other side, how it's there, what, what is the reaction going to be? The Chinese will analyze and study and be ready for the next summit to see if it's something that they can use to their advantage. And the U.S., uh, as always, has very short-term political considerations uh, on the four-year cycle. Correct. Yeah. And both uh, Taiwan and China it seem to think that they have the long-term history on their side with uh, China not forcing the issue in a, a, a war to right. unify and Taiwan continuing to let the uh, status quo go forward. Who do you think wins out in the end, say in 50 or 100 years? Hard to know. Um, because there's so many developments that could happen along the way. I mean, are you going to have a more authoritarian government in the U.S. or a more pacifist government? Um, will there be a more... All right, so it seems like we're having some audio issues. Korea, South... Um, what kind of wide reception? Okay. Uh, sorry, uh, it, it seems you've reconnected. Um, Treat it. Yeah, you know, if you play chess, what you do is you think ahead and you try and outsmart your opponent. Um, you're not just uh, one step, you're three or four steps ahead of your opponent. And that's what the U.S. government needs to do in terms of their diplomacy. They've got to take that mindset, you know, we're not just going to react, we're going to think three, four, five steps ahead um, so that we are prepared for anything that the Chinese and or the Russians uh, may throw at us. Or even potentially the uh, Taiwanese with 57.1% of voters uh, in the most recent presidential election voting for Tsai Ing-wen, yeah. who has sure. at least alluded towards the support for independence although i think right. she acknowledges that that isn't currently uh, possible right it's not currently possible but she has she wants to 
promote a very strong, tough image that um, the Chinese are not going to be able to take over the political structure in Taiwan. She wants to show that Taiwan is, is, is standing on their own two feet and they are the government in Taiwan is going to be the ultimate decider of the future of the Taiwanese people. Um, they don't want to be bullied or what they feel is being bullied by mainland China. Um, and that's, that's the key. You know, how does mainland China react to her stance, her viewpoints? Um, will they just ignore her and go directly and engage with the, the Taiwanese people? And I think that's eventually, that's what they've been trying to do for decades is to cultivate the mindset, the relationships with the Taiwanese people by offering them an entree into um, making money in mainland China as a way to counter any kind of political influence that um, the Taiwanese government may have over, over the people. Absolutely. And it's interesting how there are aspects of that that are successful and aspects of that that are unsuccessful. Certainly, as you noted, right. the crackdown in Hong Kong has uh, massively harmed uh, Taiwanese perceptions of the of the PRC. Right. Well, on the one hand, I guess that would just be, I mean, for terms of I mean, this comes on the heels of a new law that was passed in Hong Kong, uh, obviously, for the uh, Legislative Council there. Yeah. Um, you'd have to think that uh, the Chinese the, the, in, um, in Beijing, the Communist Party, would have already, I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, think several steps ahead. Um, right. uh, perhaps, would it be out of the question to say that maybe they've said, yeah, uh, our calculations of uh, maybe losing the, the PR view of Taiwanese people uh, is something we're, we're willing to, to risk when it comes to securing Hong Kong? Possibly. Um, I do think they're going to, they're also looking at how the United States is reacting to it. Right. Um, what are we doing in support of the people of Hong Kong in terms of expressing their, their beliefs? Um, I've always said, you know, there you follow and look at you follow the terms of the contract that was signed between um, the government of mainland China um, with the Hong Kong um, Autonomous Region, is what they would say. And you go strictly by the contract, and that was to guarantee for forty something years, you know, a functioning democracy in Hong Kong. Now, if they risk going against the contract that they signed, it has a, it has an effect of hurting their ability, to, as you said, to be able to um, convince people in Taiwan and overseas Chinese, you know, that they're not uh, militaristic or, or uh, that they're not militaristic um, and that they're not playing with clean hands. You know, they've the Chinese have, have a PR problem, there's no question. Um, and that's one of the things that they have to really focus on moving forward. I think the Silk Road Initiative 
was a very, very good thing in terms of promoting economic peace and prosperity. Um, at the same time, there are a lot of complaints that uh, people, uh, some of the countries like Sri Lanka have gotten into debt, you know, uh, with the building of the port. So how China engages economically, I think is going to really tell the tale of their ability to be able to engage in soft diplomacy and win over allies down the line. Now, if the U.S. is perceived as weak and that we are not standing up and supporting our relationships with our allies, um, it would allow the Chinese to sort of undercut and, and create their own um, alliances with different countries. Um, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, we pulled out, the Chinese have gone ahead and they put together their own agreement. Right. Uh, try and bring some of these nations back into the fold on their terms. I think the EU signed an agreement with China regarding um, uh, trying to remember that it, the EU was trying to get their companies into China, get a foothold into mainland China. So they signed an agreement you know, and where the U.S. was not involved. So strong, decisive leadership on the part of the U.S. will prevent the Chinese from being able to go around us and engage with, with other countries. Absolutely. All right. Well, this has been, in my opinion, a very productive discussion. I will leave a couple minutes for anyone to share any final thoughts or conclusions that they would uh, like to share. And if people would like to submit questions via email, I'm happy to uh, respond when we're offline. For sure. Um, and as always, the uh, Eurasia Center uh, Twitter account at Eurasia underscore center always has our DMs open. All right. Uh, thank you, Mr. Winnie, for joining us. Thank you, Nick, as always. Thank you very much, yes. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you very much, sir. Have a good night, good evening, good morning, wherever you are in the globe. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Have a good day.